0: Well, May of 2013, HGTV launched a new series, Fixer Upper, ever heard of it? Chip and Joanna Gaines, up the road in Waco, started this home renovation show called Fixer Upper, Chip's the Personality, and Joanna's the brains behind the personality. Chip was, by design, a a realtor and a construction guy, and she was and is a uh, designer, and so they come together as a pretty powerful couple to renovate homes. If you've seen the show, I think I saw all five seasons, every single episode, five seasons, um, really shows you a home, a dilapidated home that um, went from rubble um, to renovation, and all the process that, that takes in between. But the reason that we watched the show likely more than any other reason was the anticipation, right? The anticipation of something broken being fixed. The anticipation of the big reveal. If you remember the show, it's been around for a while. Sorry if you haven't seen it. But at the end of the show, what happens? They have a life-size picture of the home and the couple who bought the home in front of it, and the picture is the old home, the outside of the old home, and Chip and Joanna move the picture away, and you see the big reveal of the new home. It's outside, and then they walk through the home, and you see all the amazing changes that happen to this home, the big reveal. This is also why we enjoy going to baby gender reveal parties. We want to know. We want to know, boy or girl, this is the reason you watch TV dramas and shows on Netflix and Amazon for way too many seasons, because you're waiting for the end. You're waiting to know what really happens, and some shows don't really ever get there, and when they do, it's a letdown. We want to see the big reveal. We want to see that which was hidden be revealed and unrevealed revealed becomes something known and seen listen we do the same things in our lives right now what you're doing for tomorrow and the next day is you're preparing for the worst right you're preparing your pipes and hopefully you're turning off your sprinkler system you want to know what it's going to be like is it going to be like the arctic blast we had a few years ago or is it not we don't know we live in texas You want to know what's going to happen next week in your job, next year. You want to know how your kids are going to turn out. You want to know if you're going to get that promotion at work. You want to know the future. You want to know what happens in the end of your life, what awaits you in the end. See, God has written eternity into our hearts, so we want to know how all of this turns out. It's built in. This month, I was in H-E-B a couple of days ago, and I'm checking out, and next to all the other magazines, I see this Time magazine has its latest edition. I think we have it there, maybe, or maybe you don't. Time magazine, heaven and the afterlife, what awaits us? Perfect timing. Thank you very much. Stories from the beyond, the science of continuing consciousness, the science, really, the quest to live forever. We want to know. And for a low price of $14.99, you can find out what Time magazine thinks about the afterlife, thinks about heaven and what awaits. And it's interesting because likely what they're saying today is what they said very differently a few years ago, and very differently a few years before that. It's ever-changing, but what would God have us believe awaits us? That's an important question that we all ask in some way or another. Does He reveal the future? If so, what awaits? I'm glad you ask. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. I want to show you a hope that won't fade, that won't fade like the renovated house is from Fixer Upper, a hope that won't fade like that old TV series that just won't end, a hope that won't fade or change like Time Magazine's take on heaven and eternity. The book of Revelation, it's at the end of your Bible, page 1028, if you want to look on the Bible on your chair. And today, I want to show you generally what's revealed. And more and impos- importantly, most importantly, more than what, who? Who is revealed in the book of Revelation. Let me read it. How about this morning we do this? How about we stand? Stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to show you what's revealed. It's interesting because as you stand and you consider the book of Revelation and the things that are to come, Jesus says about the things that are to come that these things are meant to make you understand and not be led astray The Apostle Paul would say to the Thessalonians who were wondering about death and were wondering about when Jesus would return, he would say to them, this is meant to encourage you, to build you up amongst persecution. And the Apostle John this morning in the very opening words of the book of Revelation is going to give us more encouragement about what is to come. Stay tuned. Revelation 1, 1 through 6, let me read it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed, hear that. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and keep it for the time is near. Would you please be seated? The first thing I want to unpack for you this morning in the book of Revelation and I'll just give it to you up front. God reveals what is to come. To bless us, to teach us, not to confuse us. And you're going, Pastor, I don't know about that. The book of Revelation, the first few words that come to mind when I think about the book of Revelation is one of them's confusing, one of them's puzzling. This book has so many images and pictures and symbols in it. How do I make sense of any of it? So it's interesting that when we come. To the book of Revelation and actually look at it, and we open the first few words, it's meant to do what? It's not meant to puzzle or confuse, it's meant to bless, the reading of it, the understanding of it, the obedience to it, it's meant to bless, and listen, I've got to give you some background, so just bear with me, it's going to feel like class a little bit, more than preaching, but I've got to give you some background, we find out that this book This book of Revelation is given from Jesus, from the Father, God, from the Godhead, to Jesus, the author, through a messenger angel to who? John. And John is a faithful witness, and John delivers the message to the seven churches in Asia, and that's how you and I have this book, that it's been disseminated out from there. John, who's John? There's a lot of Johns. There's a couple of Johns in the Bible. John was a common name. We believe that this is the Apostle John. You know the disciple that Jesus loved? You know the disciple who saw Jesus at the transfiguration, who was revealed in His glory? You know the disciple who was part of the inner circle of disciples, the sons of thunder, Peter, James, and John, the one who rested himself on Jesus' shoulder at the table, the one when Jesus dies, He's consoling Mary at the cross, the one who runs with Peter to the tomb, the first one to go in, maybe it was a little faster, to the tomb, the one who felt of the clothes that were left, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's who we're talking about, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it looks like when we study church history that John has moved himself to the area of Turkey, Asia Minor. You see it here in this text. He's moved there, and he has been at Ephesus and the surrounding area And in a few verses, what we find out is that likely he's gone into exile, and they've put him, the Romans have put him at the turn of the first century, I think, into exile because he proclaimed the Word of God. And so he's hanging out on this island of Patmos, and he receives from an angel a vision that's delivered from Jesus Christ. And the angel says, write. And the angel says, deliver this message. That's why you have it. This is the apostle John. And it looks like if you just pan down in your Bible, in verse 19, what's he going to write down? He's going to write down the things that are or were, chapter 1, verse 19, check it out. The things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, giving you an outline right here from verse 19. And then the things to come in verse, in chapters 4, all the way to the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 22. Look closer at verse 1, the first few words. It says the revelation. If you've got a Greek manuscript in front of you, the word revelation would look like the word apocalypse. That's the word we get for the word revelation, the apocalypse. And that means to reveal what is hidden, particularly at the end of the age, at the end of time, the apocalypse. And then you come down to verse 3, you also says the words of, what does it say? The prophecy. This is something that is hidden, that is going to be revealed now about the future, about what's coming after this. From John's perspective, looking forward and that message of prophecy, that message that is apocalyptic, that message is meant to bless. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to inform. It's meant to, for the people of the first century who are reading this, as they're beginning to go through persecution because of their faith, see also John, see the seven churches, to know that God has them. To know that God loves them and cares for them and is with them through it and there is hope in the end. You need that in life sometimes. You need to know the outcome so that when the trouble and the struggle is happening in present, that you can work Through it, you need an eternal perspective, and that's effectively what they are giving John and giving us in this prophecy and revelation. Have you ever studied any of the books of the Old Testament? You ever get to the book of Daniel, which has some apocalyptic visions in it, and you go, what in the world, (laughs) right? You get to chapter 2, you get to chapter 7 through 9, particularly 7 through 9, and you see the four beasts. It's symbolic. It's pictures of something that has a real meaning in time and space. But it's confusing. if you're, you ever read Daniel? Am I the only one? Everybody's like, what are you talking about? I know exactly what it means. It's really clear, right? No. There are these four beasts. And fortunately, in the book of Daniel, you have interpretation of these four different beasts. These visions. And God interprets it for Daniel and for us that it represents the different kingdoms that rise up like the Babylonians and then they fall. And then the medo Persians, they rise up and then they fall. And then the Romans, then the Greeks, rise and fall. And so you see this statue of this beast. I don't know about you, but when I see pictures in scriptures or symbols and scriptures, I'm going, what in the world does that mean? The book of Revelation is filled with them. And so it makes Revelation somewhat confusing to really interpret well and clearly. Some of us are prone to need to know every detail, and so we give it meaning that might not be there, right? That's one ditch that we fall into when we come to interpreting the book of Revelation. The other ditch is that we just spiritualize all of it. We don't really know. We don't really need to find out, so we'll just come up with principles. And that's not wrong. It's just more than that, right? And so if you want to study this book, know that it's going to take some work. Know that you're going to need to understand and look back at the rest of Scripture, to be able to interpret it. So here's the thing. Here's my promise to you as we begin this difficult book that I've got lots of pastor's friend, pastor friends when I said, hey, I'm going to do the book of Revelation. like, are you crazy? Like, really? You, you, got, you got some grays now. You're in your 40s. You're going to have a lot more. <laughs> you, are you crazy? Because it's difficult. There's images, and it's hard to know for sure what those images point to, And are, but listen, I can't think of a better time as a church for us to look forward to what is to come. It's always the right time. It's meant to encourage, but it demonstrates to us a hope that won't fade. I'll let you know at the end of the book how I feel about it. But we need this. We need future hope to deal with what's going on in our life today because I don't know about you, but sometimes the foundations get a little moved and I go, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? I need to know that you're there. I need to know that you're present. I need to know that you will be present. I need to know enough. So we need this book. We need an eternal perspective on our lives today. Peter the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter speaks about this. He's like, you need the future hope of glory to live today in the grace that you have today to motivate, to encourage. We need this. I want to give you, though, as, we are, as I'm just trying to give you some introductory thought. I don't think the book of Revelation has to be confusing, but you've got to be willing to study. If you don't have a study Bible in your house or you don't read it, you need one. We give you Bibles here on Sunday morning, but I'm going to tell you, bring your study Bible. Study the book of Revelation with me. I will unpack it for you. You're like, your job is to unpack it for me so I don't have to do all that work. Wrong. The Bible calls us all to know His Word, right? To study it. i got tons of resources. You want to come up after? I'll give you resources. We're going to do some brown bag lunches to help you understand the book of Revelation, but you've got to dig in. Will you promise to do that with me? Will you promise to read it and be blessed by it? Will you promise to study it? Will that be a commitment that we make as a church to go through hard texts together? Appreciate it. And to confuse matters maybe a little more. Because this is a difficult book to make total sense of, what happens is there are different schools of interpretation. So I'm today just going to give you a few minutes on those different schools. And you might be more confused after I do, but like anything worth pursuing, sometimes you have to get a little bit more puzzled before you can figure it out. You ever tried to play golf? All right. I take buddies out and they're like, I'm worse off now than I was before I knew anything. Sometimes you have to learn more and be more puzzled so that you can learn and grow and understand. So there's some schools of interpretation, and one of the re- I want to give this to you for two reasons. It's a little classroom today. I want to give it to you for two reasons so you know broadly the different ways that people over church history, Orthodox people, not heretics, I'm not giving you some weird thing, okay, have seen this book. And understood this book interpretively. And then I want to tell you my perspective. And here's the reality of my perspective there are different perspectives in the room, and I'm okay with that. I hope we can still have coffee. I hope we can still have tea. We might have different perspectives as a church if you go look at our doctrinal statement and our teaching statement. This is what we would call an open handed issue. Everyone. And orthodoxy, believes in the second coming of Jesus that he's really going to return, that there really will be an eternity in heaven and hell. There will be judgment. Everyone believes that. We believe that. But there are different ways of understanding the book of Revelation over the course of church history, and we ought to have enough humility to go. Not all of these positions, they're not absolute. And so we can have coffee together And be friends, I hope, even if you have a different position than me. And yet, I have conviction about my position. And that's the position that I'm going to teach you. But I'm also going to give you some information about other um, means of interpreting the book. We're going to do that at lunches. I'm going to give you resources. I want you, like the Bible says that the Bereans did in the book of Acts, to study it yourself, to come to those conclusions. With me? So let me give you this Schools of interpretation. I think we have it here. A number of different schools of interpretation on a chart, maybe. Um, first, uh, The first position is the historicist position. And what this position basically says, is, and, and most of these positions are really from J- Revelation chapter 20 through Revelation, or excuse me, 4 through 20, which deals with the section of Revelation where you're, where you're looking at. At judgments, right? You're looking at bold judgments, trumpet judgments, seal judgments. You're looking at what is pictured, at least in symbolism, antichrist, a a great tribulation, the millennial, the millennial kingdom. And so, are those to be seen as symbolic, or are, are those to be seen as having a coordinating literal meaning? A lot of different thoughts about that. The historicist position would say um, that those chapters are about the unfolding of chronological events, for sure, throughout, though, church history. So they're not necessarily future, at least to us. They're just general unfolding events in human history that have a coordinating effect with those chapters in the book of Revelation, but there's not necessarily a one-to-one ratio. So what that opens up is, for example, many of the church fathers, excuse me, um, people around the time of the Reformation, many of them held this view. They looked at chapter 4 through chapter 20 and said there are coordinating chronological events, but those tend to differ from one another. And so many in the like Luther and around the Reformation, um, believe that, for example, um, when when they talked about the Antichrist, when the book of Revelation talks about the Antichrist, you know who's in view? The Pope. The papacy. Because they were living in a day that would look like that was the trouble. So that's one view. And so it functionally makes four, chapter four, through chapter 20, events... We don't know which ones, but events that happen in, in, in the church age from the time of Jesus' return all the way until Jesus returns, okay, for the second time. That Advent, so, somewhere in church history, all those events occur. But, but you have to get to a place with even this position where you say, we're not really sure what events fall where, but there's been tribulation. Been, there's been little A, Antichrist, who are evil, Jesus has brought the kingdom, and so that's the first position. The second position is similar to the first, the idealist position, but it it really focuses less on the chronology of events that that have happened in church history and more on the truths that come out of it. So when you read the book of Revelation and you see tribulation, they would say it's more about the ideals that come out of that, the timeless truths, that when we go through persecution as Christians, that God is there. So there's not a future-looking tribulation. There's not um, specific events. It's just general principles. Good wins over evil. That's true, right? Good does win over evil. Um, God will judge. Those are general, timeless principles, And then the third position is what I would call the partial preterist position. The word preterist just means things in the past. And this gets a little different. This is now coordinating real events, specific events in church history to the book of Revelation. So we're getting a little… moving a little bit more from symbolic to real events. In this position… Think about this for a minute with me. Okay, so John is writing in the first century, so he's giving a future prophecy of something that's going to come after him. We sit and read the book of Revelation today in 2020, is it 24? We're 24, I keep saying 23. In 2024, and so what we tend to do is look forward, and what this position says is most of the prophecies in the book of Revelation have already happened. Not the coming of Jesus, not The eternal state, that clearly hasn't happened, but most of the prophecies that are in the book of Revelation have happened, and they happened near the time of Jesus. They happened right after the time of Jesus, particularly, preterists would say, these things are fulfilled in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When Titus came in and destroyed the temple that was the abomination of desolation that Jesus is speaking of, and it's interesting in the in the book of Matthew. If you go read it, Matthew twenty-three, a lot of information, y'all. Y'all with me? Y'all still with me? All right. In Matthew twenty-three, Jesus talks about how he's going to weep. He's weeping because Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. So he's talking about a future event, and then you get to Matthew chapter twenty-four, and he begins in the Olivet discourse to talk about the end of the age. And all the things that are going to happen in the end of the age. So the preterist says, see, um, what Jesus is doing, he's saying the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen, and he wants his disciples then to understand the times, to understand what's happening. So it's a view of the past. Most of what happens minus Jesus' return has already happened. Is that fair? Close? I'm close. We got some of that in here. We've got a number of these positions in here. And maybe you're hearing all this and you're like, I've never heard those, that, those kind of positions at all. The last view, and it's, it would be my view, is this, the futurist view. The futurist view says that Revelation 4, actually through 22, is about the unfolding of chronological events still to come. From right now forward, those things are still to come. So, when you look forward, and there are multiple positions in all these positions, so I can't, you don't want me to spend more time, I promise. There's more positions than that. Within all of these positions, there's multiple positions in the futurist position, but effectively, say, the, thing, the events of chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book are still future for us now. And in some of these versions, it's chronological. So, there is, a, in some of these views, a great tribulation, That's coming. There's been tribulation all the way through church history, and that teaches us something, but there is a great, corresponding, great tribulation that we believe the book of Revelation shows us. The kingdom Jesus brought when he came the first time, but the fullness of the kingdom will be still future. That's described later in the book of Revelation. The abomination of desolation, yes. You can look at Old Testament and see that with King Nebuchadnezzar. We studied about it, remember? Book of Nehemiah, they'd just come into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and the walls. The book of Daniel says, talks about the future abomination of desolation. And so if you're living in, after Daniel's day and you read the prophecy of Daniel, you're probably thinking, was that it? Right? If you're living in the days of 70 A.D., after that, and you're reading the words of Jesus, you're like, is that it? Which one is it? There's been multiple destructions of the temple, and then you get the book of Revelation, and you see the temple rebuilt. So which one is it? Yes. The futurist would say there's an already, not yet reality, as would some of the other positions. And so that's my view. My view is that everything in chapter 4 through 22 is future that there is a trajectory to prophecy and apocalyptic literature that, is re- that can happen through history, but kind of like birth pangs get bigger and bigger and bigger. Note the book of Revelation talks about birth pangs getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think all the things that happen, for example, in the tribulation, are the culmination of those birth pangs through history. And so there is a final tribulation. There is a final fullness of the millennial kingdom, there is an abomination of desolations that will happen in the future. Confused yet? So there's a lot of different schools of thought. Here's what I would encourage you to do. You can hear it from me. I got tons of resources. You can go read it, figure out, man, what's my thought? Read this book. Be blessed by this book. Learn on Sunday morning. But I got lots of resources that we can learn and grow in to learn more about what this is. But really, what I want to get to here as we think about the book of Revelation as God revealing what is to come to bless us. I want us to be willing to put in that work to study. But here's the thing. As important as all those details are, and I spent some time, didn't I? As important as all those details are, the charts the books, the things that you can read, you need to know that the biggest reveal in the book of Revelation, the biggest reveal is not Satan and demons, even though that's interesting. Right, kids? The biggest reveal in the book of Revelation isn't the timeline. It's not even the judgments. The biggest reveal in the book of Revelation is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. The central chief revelation is that of Jesus Christ. That He's preeminent. The person and work of Jesus. The power and the reign of Jesus. That's what's most revealed in the book of Revelation. And so we'll talk about all those other things in the book of Revelation, but what you need to know, maybe this is a letdown, it ought not be, but John over and over and over is going to be talking about the revelation of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and his power and his reign and the worship that accompanies our understanding and realization of that. Amen? This is a book of the revelation of Jesus Christ chiefly, And that's where we'll be every week. We'll be talking about Jesus every week. So the most central, secondly, truth is that God reveals to us the preeminence, the superiority of Christ over all these other things. That Christ is the culmination of all things. From creation to the fall of To all the struggle that Israel went through in the Old Testament. To redemption that He brings from a cross and resurrection to hear the consummation. To understand that, that Jesus is the central figure of all the Scripture. That He's anticipated in the Old Testament. His coming, His first and second coming. That when He comes in the Gospels... That John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the predicted Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That he's manifested, that they see him. And then you get to the book of Acts and what's happening? Who are they proclaiming? They are proclaiming Jesus, the risen Son of God. And you know what the epistles do? You know what the epistles are about, all of them? They're about Jesus explained and understood. And then you get to the book of Revelation and you see the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. Your Bible is about the person and work and rule and reign of Jesus. That's what it's about. So don't miss that. With all the schools of interpretation, with all the schools of thought, all the things that we're curious about that we want to know that might be revealed, when they might be revealed, that Jesus is the focus in the book of Revelation. And that's what the text says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But keep looking. Let me read it. I'm not going to have you stand again. I didn't read the rest of it earlier. Verse 4. Love this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So that's who he's primarily writing to. That's his audience. And here's a blessing or a benediction. Grace to you and peace. From him who is and who is to come. I think that's speaking of the Father. God the Father. So this is a Trinitarian greeting. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. We see other parts where this is the Holy Spirit of God. So the Father, Holy Spirit. And then look. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Who's he going to talk about for the next two verses? Father, Spirit? No, he's going to talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Look at all the descriptors, the beautiful, deep descriptors of Jesus. And then he's going to worship. I want to walk through these. Jesus Christ, look at it in verse 5. It first says, He is the faithful witness. See, in Jesus' revelation, he is the faithful witness. What did he come to do? What did Jesus say he came to do? He said he came to reveal who? The Father. He came to reveal the character of the Father. That's why he came, so that we might know the Father. How'd he do? He revealed the Father perfectly. And it's interesting in this text that he calls John to be a what? A witness. You know what the Bible calls us to do, you and me? What are we meant to do? What are our marching orders? We talked about it a few weeks ago, last week. Our marching orders to, are to be what? A witness. A witness to Jesus and who He is and what He's done. And for Jesus, it meant literally that He was a martyr. That's what the word Witness means here that he was put on a cross for your sins and mine. See, in his revelation, he is a faithful witness. Keep looking. In his resurrection, he is, what does it say? The firstborn of the dead. What in the world is that? The firstborn of the dead. It does not mean that he's created for like you would think of a firstborn child. That's not what it means at all. It means he is the first. He is preeminent. Of the dead, the idea is he's the first one to rise from the dead. And he is the only one who has done it and stayed alive. And in his resurrection, you find your hope for what? Resurrection. He's the faithful witness. He's the resurrection. Keep looking. If you think about resurrection, Jesus in a couple of verses later in verse 18 in chapter 1 says this about his resurrection. He says, I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Resurrection. Think we think much about what happens to us after we die? He has the keys to that. Also, verse 5, you see his what? You see his rule. The ruler of the kings of the earth that Jesus is king. And note something, it's present tense. It doesn't say that he will be king, and he's not now. It says that he is king. John writing this in the first century, at the turn of the first century. You know one of the issues we're going to get to in chapter 2 and 3 with the churches? Emperor worship. Roman emperor worship. Domitian was likely the ruler at this time, and Nero before him. And you know what they expected people to do? Worship them. And so when John says, or the vision, Jesus, actually Jesus says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, this is a dig on what's going on currently in first century. It's as if Jesus is saying, no, Demetian, Nero, they're not the rulers. They're not the kings. I'm king. Jesus is king. That's about the only thing Kanye West got right in his album, right? Jesus is king. Some people are tracking. Jesus is king. He's king Now. Also, verse 6, look at it. This is beautiful. The descriptors of Jesus to Him who loves us. How do we know He loves us? He's freed us from our sins by His blood. That's the cross. That He's not only revealed Himself and resurrected and ruling and king, He's our Redeemer the idea of being set free is the idea of a prisoner in chains who has no way out, that he can't break the chains himself, and Jesus comes and sets us free and delivers us and rescues us from the chains of our sin. That's who our God is. How do you know he loves you? You you know he loves you because of the cross. I like to say it this way. He freed us, past tense, From sin's penalty. That's your justification. He freed us from sin's penalty. He is freeing us from sin's power now. And he will free us from sin's presence one day. That's our hope. That's what we believe about Jesus. And then last, look at it. In his reign, so his revelation, his resurrection, his rule, a lot of ours, his redemption, his reign. What has he made us? He's brought us into this deal. He's made us a kingdom of priests. That means that we serve Him. New Testament, all of us, we're kingdom of priests. That we serve Him, that we worship Him. And note how this ends. All these descriptors don't end with, man, I took great notes about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. What, is it, what does it end in? It ends in doxology. It ends in worship. To Him be what? Glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, for John, theological descriptors of Jesus didn't stay just in the mind. It moved into the emotions and the heart, and it produced worship. Can I ask you this morning, is this the Jesus Is this the Jesus that you know? Do you know the Jesus that has set you free from your sins? Who's raised from the dead? That one day, that's the only hope you have to be raised from the dead. You want to know the big reveal? You die. Then what? What awaits you? Jesus unlocks the keys of death and Hades for you and me. That's the big reveal. Well, I want for a second to test, to test the centrality of Jesus in our lives by giving you some examples, because you can know all these truths about Jesus and not necessarily be moved by them in your life. So let me ask you, in 2024, let's start here, in 2024, when I think of 2024, I think election year. Oh, it's going to get crazy, isn't it? I'm not, a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's going to get crazy because power's on the line. I, I don't know. What's going to happen? Let me ask you. What's going to happen when your political candidate of choice or your party of choice, even the better one, doesn't win? Where is your hope? Then. How much hope do you have that your candidate or party of choice, even the better one, will win? And here's how you know your response when they don't. How much fear does it bring? Listen, you ought to be an engaged citizen. You ought to vote. You ought to care about your country for yourself, for your kids, for your grandkids. I'm all in. But where is your hope? Part of the reason we're doing this book for all of us, for me included, is so that we remember in November and all through this year, in an election year, where our hope and in whom our hope lies, okay? What does that look like in the past? Where have you put your hope? If it's just in our country, which is certainly morally sliding, I don't like it any more than you or a particular candidate that you think is going to fix everything that is a hope that will fade let me ask you this expectations expectations for your spouse no no elbowing what level of expectation do you have for them are they your all and all listen your, your spouse ought, you ought to have expectations for your spouse, your biblical expectations you have husband and wife, but how much additional expectation do you put on your spouse to be Jesus to meet all your needs when they were never designed to meet all your needs? What kind of trouble does that produce in your life when you treat them that way? Listen, your spouse is not the faithful witness, not the Jesus level, faithful witness at least. And so expectations for those around you, your spouse, your children, children, your parents, your boss, those around you. what kind of expectations do we build for those people? They are not Jesus. they are not the faithful witness. Do we put too much expectation in people and things around us? If we do, it's a hope that will fade. How about our own self-sufficiency with the things and ideas that we have about our life and others, the things that we try to control? Remember, Jesus and Jesus alone is the Redeemer, not us. You can't fix all your problems. You are not self-sufficient, not as self-sufficient as you think you are. If you live that way, what happens is you live in a hope that will fade, even in yourself. If you are sick, and you have bad health, and you don't know if tomorrow's going to come, are you trusting in the firstborn of the dead? Are you trusting in the one who's raised this week? I hate that I even have this story. Sorry. Some friends of ours, long-time friends of ours. Wonderful family, loved Jesus, served Jesus, 20 years of ministry, have four kids. And their eighth grader, the youngest, was on a UTV this week, riding with his buddies on a road, hit a bump, a deep bump, threw the UTV up in the air. The other passengers lived, he died. Eighth grader, about to turn 14. They buried him this week. And they sang to open the service. Amazing grace. How can it be? And they closed within Christ alone. In those moments, what hope do you have? In those brutal, difficult, gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching moments... What are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? A message for you today is this. Jesus is the only hope that will not fade. He's the only hope that will not fade. He's the big reveal and he will carry us through. That's the chief message today, and that will be the chief message all year long. Jesus is our hope that won't fade. Amen? Let me pray.